Hello, and welcome to Effective Conversations with Yael Feiner. Each episode is a unique journey into a polarizing topic where we go beyond the facts, explore the underlying emotions, and learn something new about ourselves. Marmar is a young, white, transgender activist who fights for BIPOC voices to be heard. In this interview, we talk about the Ferry Creek blockade, the conflict with the RCMP, racism, and the internal tension between different groups on the ground. Do you feel comfortable to talk about gender and walk me through this topic? Yeah, well, I mean, it's talking about gender is a, is a very in-depth topic, right? And it's, it's really tough to discuss with people sometimes um, that, that don't really have like uh, relationships to like other gender diverse or non-conforming people because the idea of what's male and what's female is so deeply ingrained into our psyche that anything that doesn't fit, even, even through a transition, anything that doesn't fit what we understand as today's male and female is confusing and overwhelming to a lot of people. I mean, like my whole life, um, I'm only 23. I turned 24 actually this Friday. Um, oh, but I've been, uh, thanks, yeah. Um, I've been out as trans since I was 19. Um, but I have been gender queer since I was seven. A lot of transness comes from, and a lot of, your, your gender comes from how you express yourself, right? Like, we have concepts in our mind of what the feminine behavior looks like and what the masculine behavior looks like, but consider that every human just behaves. Every human is yeah. just themselves before yeah. they are something that is a stereotype that we are putting on them based on what type of genitalia they have or they don't have. And so for me, um, growing up as a female, um, I am AFAB and AFAB stands for assigned female at birth. Um, I was considered a very beautiful female. I was very involved in sports. Um, the only child on both sides of my family there. Um, so I had a lot of pressure on me to be a certain way to live this life with the white picket fence, the dog, the husband, um, with a baby on the way. Um, but I always knew that that wasn't for me. Um, and a lot of it came from aspects of control that are perpetuated by society that in turn are perpetuated by my nuclear family, right? We all know what the nuclear family is of like the way we live in such individualized cubicles of homes. And so my family really wanted what's best for me because that's the easiest route to take when really being told that that's the easiest route is completely oppressive to how I'm trying to be as an authentic individual, right? Um, and so for me, having top surgery, so top surgery is the removal of breasts. I had a double incision or uh, a double scar mastectomy surgery. And I recently just had a revision um, just to get some things fixed up, which I'm very grateful for that in British Columbia, that, that trans care is taken care of. Like there is medicinal 
medical treatment that is covered through MSP um, through our province. Um, and it was really awesome to have surgery and then have my surgeon be like, hmm, you know what? I think we can make that better for you, young man. And I was like, you can't. He's like, yeah, I'll see you back next year. And I was like, that's so crazy. Like, what a privilege wow. in in wow. this country. And BC is like, the, to my knowledge, is the only province that does this so far. And so I felt very honored to actually be one of the first set of uh, trans people in BC to have that surgery covered and go through this program. Um, so in me saying that, talking about gender and kind of going on this t tangent is that like for me, I didn't keep my nipples because as a female, I felt too sexualized. I felt like my entire being, you know, what has history given me and history has given me objectification, no sense of bodily autonomy. I'm only seen as a walking reproductive system and a cum dumpster. And that reflected in a lot of my treatment, especially as a teenager, right? Because men feel so entitled to you, especially if you are a tall, pretty girl and growing up and being tall, um, my age was assumed a lot of the time and the treatment that I have received from men um, and even from like my own family members because of how I am um, made me feel unsafe. And everything that I did was always because like, oh, you can't go out at night because, you know, men are going to do this to you. You can't do this at night because this is going to happen to you. And so I always felt like my expression had always been masculine. I've always been very masculine despite how my appearance is. Um, and it just got to the point um, where I'm like, this body isn't safe. This body that I have is not going to keep me safe. Um, and it didn't because so many men felt entitled to me and they yeah. took advantage of that and they, things happened to me. Um, and so that just kind of validated, you know, I'm like, I want to keep my body safe. Um, so I had surgery and I didn't keep my nipples. So I no longer have mammary glands. I no longer have nipples. And to me, that is a complete desexualization of my body. And that removes the ownership of the patriarchal hands and gaze from myself and from others. To me, it's like true neutral. My body is safe. Um, and it's quote unquote unappealing, but I, I'm appealed to it. I quite like it. And so do other trans people. <laughs> so that's kind of um, my thought and feelings. That's very powerful. Do you feel safer because you are less feminine? I still very much feel female. Um, okay. I feel like I'm both and nothing at the same time, right? Like I'm, I'm just me. When I have other women talk to me, because, you know, I've been um, passing as a man um, for about four, four years, I would say pretty solid where I have new relationships where people didn't know me prior. And so when they find out that I'm trans, they're like, Oh, that makes sense. And they're like surprised because they're like, yeah, I was like, I was wondering what was going on because you seem so safe. Like you're not threatening to me. And I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, um, it, it worked. <laughs> what you wanted. Yeah. To I'm work. like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice that I have male privilege and I'm able to speak from an aspect where I can use my male privilege to teach men how to just be kind, not hypersexual beings and call them out on their behavior in a way where uh, I'm respected and it doesn't come across as naggy. That's a really special privilege. Did you need to take uh, testosterone for the transitioning? So I actually... 
Yeah, so actually everybody has both hormones. Everybody has three hormones, actually. I am someone, because I have a uterus and ovaries, um, the female males in my family, we have something called PCOS. It's called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And these are cysts that develop on your ovaries. Uh, so I already have high levels of testosterone. So even before I started transitioning, like and before I started hormone replacement therapy, HRT, I already had a lot of masculine traits. I had a lot of body hair. My voice was already very deep. And people assumed that when I told them that I was transitioning, that I was transitioning to female. And so um, I was only on testosterone um, for about a year and a half. I've been off of it for two because I took it until I got the desired changes that I wanted, which was more masculization of my voice um, and more so on like my facial features. Um, and so once I got the desired effects, I was like, I don't want to lose my hairline, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> it's nice to be able to be selective and to like be okay with, um, you know, where my body is at. And I do have a lot of gratitude for my body and the resilience that it's given me, um, as a new home. Cause I've really put it through a lot over the years. <laughs> How is it for you to be queer in this community? Do you feel majority minority? Do you feel accepted? Do you feel safe on, on the queerness level? It, it's interesting because, okay. Um, I've been, I'm born and raised on Vancouver Island in Victoria. Victoria is uh, indigenously known as Metulia. So we're ta talking about the, the Wasanic people, the Coast Salish people. And so my experience in the city here is it is very queer friendly. Um, and, you know, birds of a feather flock together kind of thing. I have been called a faggot numerous times walking downtown. I have been called a faggot up at Ferry Creek by, like, four different industry workers. And, like, I don't really dress very um, eccentric. Like, I wear classic slacks. And especially when I'm at the blockade, I dress less queer. Like, I have... Uh, five piercings. I have six tattoos. Um, I do have like a mullet that's kind of like has longer hair. Um, and the way that I walk innately, I think is just what makes people or men be like, this person is a faggot. And they're not wrong in saying that. And that's usually my first response when I experience discrimination, especially when they're like, like tranny or faggot is I'm like, you're right. And then they're totally shocked because they expect me to get angry at them. Right. And so, you know, within the Fairy Creek community, I would say that there's times where I've had really awesome conversations with industry workers about gender theory even. But there's also been times where I have been, you know, yelled at in a very derogatory way. There has been, in, in terms of my queerness, um, a lot of questions and a lot of confusion from people. So I wouldn't necessarily say within like the, the land defender side of Fairy Creek is, has been mostly accepting of me, but it's been really tough um, to kind of deal with the covert negative reactions to me coming out to certain people, because there's been times where I would overhear a conversation about um, uh, an example would be like the, this one older Jen was talking about one of my friends who was wearing a pair of leggings and was really objectifying her body and saying like, whoo, like, dang, they really make clothes different these days. Like, look at that ass. And I'm like, what the fuck? And so I say something and I'm like, 
hey, like, that's my friend. It's really weird to hear you, someone who's, like, three times her age, talk about her that way. And he's like, well, like, what are you, some kind of, like, wussy? And, like, you know, this isn't everybody, but it's, like, continuously this one specific demographic of man uh, that says something. And so usually when I pipe up, they immediately question my masculinity and who I am. They get defensive. And then I tell them, I say, well, actually, just so you know, like, I'm not a dude. I have a vagina. Um, and then their whole reaction perspective changes and the way that they act is so different. You've got vagina and you've got some balls. Do you find those comments arrive mainly from white men? Um, it's mainly white men from what I can perceive, white. but it's very much like above the age of 35 um, mm-hmm. that usually continuously act a very certain way. Um, you know, and I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna say not all men because yes, it's yes. all men. Unfortunately, and as a man and as someone who has worked really hard to like learn male mannerisms and try to fit in in the masculine realm, I've had to take on some of that behavior too, and I've actually caused a lot of harm to old friends of mine that are no longer my friends because of how much I've internalized that masculinity. It's really tough to find good masculine male presenting role models. Um, and I think a lot of us can kind of agree to that. like most of us do have daddy issues or grandfather issues. Or like, you know, like how long is this guy good until, you know, something bad comes up, right? And so I would say that throughout my transition, even beforehand, um, I never like my father figure, um, my dad, I don't talk to him anymore, but uh, very racist, very sexist, was strangely accepting of gay queer trans things you know it came with its own set of microaggressions but in terms of things that he had an issue with it was like haha I'm gonna poke fun at you but it's nothing that I'm gonna like get mad over um, and so for me like transitioning um, and especially with the type of experience that I've had with men and as a woman um, I felt the way to keep myself safe was to make myself hyper masculine and by making myself hyper masculine it kind of involved taking on like uh, a certain scripture in my mind of like, okay, like if I'm around guys, like I have to have guy talk, you know, or if I'm making a joke to make sure that I pass or that I'm accepted into this group of males, I'm going to have to make a fucking sexist joke. And like genuinely to be safe, you do have to play the role, right? But it came to the point where it like completely changed my psyche and it damaged relationships because With women? in a way I was... With, with like my my female and like gender queer friends as well right like especially um and so there and like I would say a lot of that still hasn't healed um in that regards like it, it's a really tough thing and it's been really tough to know that you've like fucked up so bad without even like being aware of it because you've just like turned yourself into a monster thinking that it was something that you needed to do. Um, and like, there's nothing you can do now to ever repair it. And you just have to sit with that feeling to know that with that group of people, you really screwed up. Um, and all you can do going forward is to have that discussion with yourself of like, here's what I know I can do better next time and lead by example, you know, yeah. like you, and that has been probably the hardest part of my adult life is learning how to sit with. The feelings of like you've done ha- harm beyond repair 
um, and you're Next just going to have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Your level of awareness is so beautiful. Do you have a practice for sitting with the discomfort? I would say I've only recently kind of come into practice with it, but I, I talk to myself a lot <laughs> and I say like, I, and I really run through, like I have those shower arguments, you know, but like, like shower discussions of like, if I'm given the opportunity to talk to this person again, what am I going to say? And it has been a journey of like, how can I be the most accountable being? So I would say like reaching that point of like villainy falling, um, because with that type of behavior comes a lot of power, right? And then that power actually made me fall because I had no one there to catch me. And I think Is that it really a lot of power? It felt like a lot of power, but it's it fair, was it fear. Like it felt it's like fear. that, right? And this like, is the confusion, yeah. Yeah, that's the, the con confusion there. So like for me, it's just been like the complete turning effect of like, you know, why am I perpetuating this toxic trait from my family and from society to feel safe. And so it really, I feel like it needed to happen um, in order for me to be able to have the insight that I have now into both aspects of the world truly, because I know what it's like from the masculine perspective now, as well as from the female perspective. And no matter what our sex is or our gender, we can perpetuate toxic traits of femininity and masculinity as well right like females aren't exempt from toxic masculinity or hypersexualization males yeah. are not exempt from you know the same thing right like we can both embody those types of traits um so what i do now is i try to be as accountable as possible and i look at things through the eyes of a young girl and what does it what does that mean um, I tap well, into I like little me. It is like young, young Marmar. She's here. She's listening. She's observing. Because kids just have this way of like being so present without necessarily taking up a lot of space, right? Like, like being, like if you think about yourself as a child, like you know, some of us were really hyperactive or we're sat and we're observers, but but all of us have such a huge cup of empathy to give each other and so a lot of the time at the blockade well every day at the blockade you have to make sure that your empathy cup is filled up and that sometimes involves being like i actually don't have time for this i'm going to go <laughs> hang out in my tent and hang out by the river and try and recoup my energy so i can bring that cup but there's been times where i have where alcohol has been present at the blockade and people have gotten drunk and i have been physically attacked by other men my age because of my role at the blockade a lot of the time was practicing security culture so when like shit hit the fan or aggressive people showed up or certain situations came like i was a person that was called over the radio um in headquarters um and so there's times where i have been f attacked physically by other men um because i'm like trying to de-escalate a situation and then a type of presence you know you see when people are really drunk you actually see their their little child and yeah. like being at the blockade too it was so bizarre dealing with these situations because even though a lot of the things that happened there were stressful it was mirrors into my past and there was one situation um with a young 
fellow my age who was really traumatized being up at Waterfall. This is before the raid on headquarters on August 9th. Um, and raid is when the police come in with their uh, cars? They come in with the cars, with a helicopter, and they destroy everything. Everything. This is doesn't everything. matter if it's your personal property. doesn't matter if it's your vehicle. doesn't matter if it's structures that you've built. doesn't matter if it's a stash of things that you've hidden. Um, and you've communicated to them that, like, this is your items. This is where they are. You know, you can search them, but please don't destroy them. They will do it anyway. So raid means they come in, they destroy, and they take everything possible. And they arrest everyone possible. <sighs> Um, and that was something that I lived through and that many people have lived through. Yeah. Um, and like at any blockade, right? Like it's happened at Wet'suwet'en. And like when I think about a raid too, um, and the stress of a raid, like I had my own camp. I was gifted a hard block. Um, I first showed up to Fairy Creek, Adishk. Adishk means Stony Creek and Stony Creek is shared territory between the Pachidat and Dididat peoples. Um, as well as the, the new Chalnuth and new Chalnuth has like 15 plus hereditary chiefs. So there's like 15 different sections and colonially, we would call them municipalities within the township. Right. So that's me colonizing the indigenous practice there. But, um, it's important to recognize too, that like borders are fake and a lot of the territories that we are on are actually shared and have been ancestrally shared throughout the nations across Turtle Island, which is North America. So being at the blockade, having my camp raided, now I brought $1,500 worth of stuff. And I, the purpose of Blackgate, which was HQ's hardest hard block, it was a dragon in the ground with a Buick Sabre sedan, a car with a hole cut in the middle and my friend Rose was the person committed to being inside of that hard block. She hammered herself inside of this car and her hand went down in and through and into the ground. So while she was locked in, if the car had gotten moved in any direction or any way, there's risk of amputating this individual. Wow. So that's what made that the hardest hard block um, in headquarters. And you had to like line it up precisely. We had to have a team of people like pushing and directing the car to making sure that it actually lined up with the hole and it was as it should be. Um, so my camp was called Blackgate and it was right after the sacred garden, um, which is actually kind of still one of the last remaining structures in headquarters district off of Granite Main there. Um, and so I spent three months at the blockade. I was gifted that hard block. I had it for two months. And the purpose of it was to be a, a queer BIPOC post-arrest, um, post-action debrief station. So I actually brought couches. Um, I had curtains set up. I made it look like a living room. Coffee table, plants, stuffed animals, blankets. Like you walk in, everything's wow. kind of like sectioned off. It has walls. And you're like, I'm not in the woods anymore. And as much as the woods are a beautiful place, like I found for a lot of people that would come there is like, they would just cry immediately. <laughs> the second they would sit down, they're like, I feel like I'm at home. That sounds like Oasis in a war zone. Yeah. Well, I, uh, it was very small camp cause I wanted to keep it small numbers. Cause I'm like, I only need five people to put this hard block into place, but I want it to be like a, a secret. I don't want it to be a hub, right? Because I want it to be a place where people can go to cry, to nap, to get away from the hustle and bustle because it was just outside of 
the the main area. Um, right. And there were a lot of uh, post-arrest, post-action um, debrief meetings that happened there. And so I just bring up food and like cook for people and just kind of cultivate a sense of like home and quiet. And it would be really cute to come up and see like people just napping in my camp, um, being all cozy and quiet. And, you know, there was a lot of young mothers that would come up there too with their infants. Um, and it was awesome to see. It, it was really nice just to see like my uh my uh so the furniture that i brought was actually my my late great grandmothers um and it was all things i inherited um and like i knew that when i brought these things that they would get destroyed and um you know i'm i'm glad that my camp got to be used as like a safe place and a lot of people hung around and they're like this is exactly what we needed is a quiet spot um in the woods because it's like like the first black gate was right when uh the clear cut meets the forest um and there's like two ravines on either side you have like like the the main river um to the right of the ravine and then there's like small other creeks on the other side and so yeah it very magical spot i think about it all the time um but yeah i talking about colonialization and like watching an excavator like pick up my car and crush it and put it in the sacred garden and watch an excavator like slap my tent like just grab its claw and just side sweep everything that was mine like off and into the bush um and those were all of my worldly possessions Right. And like, you know, I knew that this was going to come, but just the feeling of standing there and knowing that there are other factors that went into to Blackgate that I feel impacted by. Um, so August 12th was the day that I lost my camp. Um, and there was a lot of male ego involved in how to handle Blackgate and Blackgate was my camp. And a lot of people from the front lines because HQ was never supposed to be a front line. I mean, it was going to come at some point, but um, a lot of people that had been on the front line come down, came down and just assumed that nobody in headquarters knew anything. And I was like, Hey, I know what I'm doing with this hard block. You guys can do anything else in this district. Don't touch my car. Don't do this. Here's the plan. Here's how people need to stand. We need to maintain shade for Rose. We need to make sure that this canopy stays over top of her while she's in this car after we just had the heat dome. Right? So they're going to try and cook her out of here, make Rose as uncomfortable as possible. We need to maintain shade. This is an advantageous point to stay. We can afford to lose people because it's only a 20-minute walk up the river to sneak back in to get to where we are. And if we lose Blackgate, they're set seven kilometers up the road, two kilometers away from river camp. That's not good. We need to hold this as long as possible. So despite all of my logic, despite having um, patched up matriarch whale tail and Katie and CM um, and Ogamau, in, indigenous leaders, tell me that they are grateful that I am there and to do whatever it takes to keep the mountain safe. Despite me having that and saying that, like, this is what's happening. Can you trust me? There was no trust within me. And so my whole plan, I had people already figured out. I'm like, this is what the formation is going to look like when they siege the camp tomorrow. This is where I need people to stand. Um, everything was thrown out the window because a couple men decided 
that they wanted to do it their way, which was not hold a line at all. And that night, the RCMP was at Red Dress, which is only two kilometers away from the main camp, which was River Camp, which is where the Indigenous people were. So my camp held less than a day when it was supposed to hold for at least four days. And I, and it's because I was bullied out of my position by men, by men that assumed that they knew more than me because they had been up at Waterfall forever. And I said, I've had two months to study this camp. I've had two months to build this camp. I've had two months to actually have a squad of people together to help me facilitate and be prepared for this raid. Here is the literal <laughs> drawings of how I want people to do. I have a strategy figured out. Why can't we do it? And so and those that was something that hurt me the most. Of the blockade. Part of like- and those white men are part of the blockade. Yeah. like We're supposed to be on the same page, but they fought with me. Exactly. They came down and they fought with me. And, you know, and the shittiest part was, is I went to bed and I said, because you need you needed to sleep at some point, right? I said, I'm going to sleep for four hours. The raid is going to happen at probably 7.30, 8 o'clock. Um, I need to know that you guys aren't going to touch the car. Don't touch that hard block whatsoever. You can do anything else. Build more trenches. Build this. Leave the car alone please. And I get woken up about two hours into my sleep, um, being told by one of my friends that they're taking the tires off of the saber. So I'm being woken up. They've already taken three of the tires off. They're on the last one. And I say, guys, did you even consider that there's a PVC pipe that has to have the proper amount of clearance to actually clip in to lock into the ground? Melts hanging open, catching flies. Did you consider that the hole underneath the car, which Rose clips in through, is the only way that she can get fresh cooked meals through? Right. Didn't consider that. So I, and it's really tough because everyone's super stressed out. Everyone's on high edge, but I have to say ego is why we lost headquarters so easily. Yeah. And it's because men really wanted to have their ideas heard over everyone else because they had been at waterfall for so long. Like they're used to this. And I'm like, but you don't know this hard block. You don't know the ingredients that are going into it. You're also not respecting indigenous protocols and wishes for who was responsible for this specific block. Right. And the, a lot of the discourse within this movement has been white settlers, not listening to indigenous wishes. Listening to that, as a native person, your mind might say, yeah, that's right. And the feeling might be of being right and pride. And if you're considering yourself as a settler, you might feel deep discomfort, injustice, anger and shame. Unrecognized and unprocessed emotions will take us to an unproductive conversations. We might find ourselves repeating ourselves, repeating the arguments, feeling tensed and stressed, feeling resentful. We might be easy to explode. Take a moment to recognize what you feel and allow your emotions to flow through you until it changes enough that it's not controlling you anymore. And so that's what happened to me during the raid. And that is like that feeling of just seeing everything leave and not feeling supported um, by 
you know, people that are supposed to have your back was probably the more traumatic than my arrest um, than anything because I'm like, I don't know who to trust. Um, and it is really tough to talk about this because one thing that I know about the Fairy Creek blockade is that no one is capable of holding white men accountable. Indigenous women are because they are in their power. Because I know what has to be said, where like white women, we've been trained to be complacent to white male authority. Where, you know, patriarchal society only comes from like white settler practice. It only comes from Christianity practice. You know, and now it's like the societal norm when a lot of indigenous cultures are matriarchal. Women are the um, authorities of the house and their opinions are respected and upheld. And so um, it's been really tough to witness BIPOC indigenous like females vouch and advocate for other people, other minorities and advocate for themselves continuously and in a way that is loud and present and is respectable. But because of who they are, it is taken as them being thorns in everyone's side. They're seen as too aggressive and simply because they're not complacent with shitty behavior and i keep seeing a lot of leaders and a lot of the like quote-unquote main people who started the blockade really uphold patriarchal idealism um, and continue to allow people that have sexually assaulted girls at camp to come back to camp, despite these women being very open about what happened to them. These individuals are still okay and welcome back because, well, they didn't experience this with this individual. They think that he's fine. And at the same time, it's like, why don't we have this discussion? You know, why are we okay with indigenous BIPOC youth, my age and younger, leaving camp en masse just to allow this one white dude a seat at the table sometimes? All of my friends left the blockade. None of my... So after the raid happened, because a lot of things were coming to a head before HQ got raided, and it was specifically around social media and platform and financial gatekeeping. So a lot of people were gatekeeping finances because they're like, well, well, you don't know what you're doing, being very patronizing. Like, you don't know what's going on here. Like, we were here from the start. Like, it's just going to take too much time to train you and to, like, show you all of these things. And they're like, but we're re- willing to learn. Like, we can make connections. We can get people involved. And I was there for these discussions. I was present for most of them um, just to bear witness and to help facilitate um, as a white body. And continuously, like these people were shut out and these are like people who are from Pachydat. These are people who are indigenous and actually if they're not directly Pachydat or Dididat or Nichalnuth, they have married relations. So they are related, right? And a big thing with this movement is we are so focused on the trees that we forget about the people. We forget that we are the same as the trees. The only reason why we are here needing to protect old growth is because of colonialization is because of the patriarchal system that we've chosen to upheld and exist in. And so 
by overstepping and not seeking Indigenous approval or consent or involvement at the start of the movement, um, it created a breeding ground for it to not be upheld. I want to see other settlers, and especially settlers that are in position of power that have access to certain channels within this movement, to say, what can I do to help? Not defend themselves, but just say, what can I do different and how can I help? And that is when change happens. That is when you're like, okay, this is what I know to work with because we're making assumptions based off of how people, how we think people are going, what we think people need. And we need to start asking people what they need and start doing it. Anyway, that's what I want to say. Yeah. I want to ask you about the indigenous protocol. What other protocols are there regarding to the blockade and and how do you see it's not being respected? Um, so I want to say that I am third generation settler on my mother's and sixth generation settler on my father's. So I'm speaking from a point of myself as a white person with European descent, right? Mm-hmm. And so the knowledge that I have acquired has been through relationships with friends who are Indigenous, as well as uh, a few workshops that I've attended with um, other elders. Um, the most recent one I've been to is with uh, Daryl Bob, who is from Statlium. So I think it's important to understand that there are hundreds of thousands of indigenous groups throughout Turtle Island. And every single group of people has different set of protocols. Mm. So primarily there are a couple basic ones that for the most part are unanimous throughout uh, the continent. Um, And so here the initial thing when we're talking about what protocol wasn't followed and that is consultation and relationship building with the nation's consent Consent was something that was gathered partially after the fact, after the blockade was started at Ferry Creek. And so a lot of the protocols is following just this thing of respect, right? And so, you know, there are things like with the instance of Ferry Creek around protocol, we do have an elder, Bill Jones, who has come forth after the blockade was started and was like, you know what, I agree, this is something that needs to happen. Protocols still weren't followed appropriately. But we have Bill Jones, we have Whale Tail, um, and they're patched at, and they're there. Well, Bill's an elder, he's he's quite old, but Whale Tail is on the blockade every single day. Um, and so with protocol, one thing that this movement still has to do with their funds, right? Because unfortunately, money is how we gain goods and services in this world. Um, We have yet to give the host nations finances. We have yet to gift Pachidat a discussion to say, you know, how can we help you? Do you want our help? Like, hi, we're here. This is who I am. Can we help you? Do you want us here? How can we work on this relationship? How can we support you better? Um, And it's gotten to the point where like there has been some people who have gone to the reserve um, in a way that was meant to be good and intentional, um, but it wasn't received well. And so it's kind of tricky because you have to, in, in, 
in a way from what I've heard, like talking with Grandma Losa um, and like in the workshop with Daryl Bob is that you do have to have friends that are there, you know, like you have to, to show your face and talk about who you are. And so when you go and you meet new people, which is why I introduced myself when I began these discussions, you know, is like my family on my mother's side is primarily Welsh and Irish and English. And when I bring that up, and when I brought that up in the workshop with Daryl Bob, um, he was saying, you know, we have really good relations with the Irish, you know. And so when my friend Nos, who I gave you information, they're um, Hashquia, which is one of the 15 New Chalmuth nations. And so um, New Chalmuth, Pashtat, and Dididat have relationships. So w- when you talk about yourself, you talk about where you're from, who your family name is. And then they'll be like, oh, actually, no, I were married in with Haida Nation. We have ties to like the Warren family. We have ties to, you know, and so part of protocol is knowing your ancestors, knowing the lands in which you are from, um, and just like knowing who you are and knowing who you are is knowing your land and your ancestors. And I know that me living in, in Vancouver Island, Victoria, Metulia, Mm-hmm. on Coastalis territory this is not my land even though I was born and raised here my whole 23 years this is not the land of my people and so I know I kind of go on like these tangents here but that's okay tell me what brought you to the blockade are you here to protect the old growth I didn't what? come for the trees no Where I did, did not that is not what brought me to the blockade I saw a video on Instagram of Ogamau getting thrown to the ground by police. And Ogamau is a two-spirit, non-binary, indigenous youth, my age, being harmed by police and sharing their story on social media. I came for the people. Um, because I know that, yes, like ecocide is something that is being committed, but genocide is equally as great and it's still actively happening in front of our faces. So I was like, I am a white body. I'm a white male body. I can go up there and I can learn to work to protect these people and help keep my friends safe. Um, and so it and really causes a lot the of people. Police? You can. If you're good at it, <laughs> um, you just have to know that the police have no authority over you. Like you have to trust in your ability to like, we keep us safe. And when the police grab somebody, when you're walking in the bush and they just pluck them off and they ambushed you. And now those, that person's detained, you can go right up and you can grab that person. You can de-arrest them, cut off their zip ties and take them back. You just have to be smart about it. And you have to put yourself between them and police every single time. And they won't hurt you because you're white? No, they... It's interesting. So things that I've seen is I've seen white-bodied bubbles with like BIPOC and Indige folk in the center. And police will actively reach into the middle to grab a person of color or an Indigenous person before they touch a white man. And they sure as heck love to grab women. They love to grab women. Um, my friend Fox, who is AFAB, assigned female at birth, was uh, pinched by her nipples and pulled to the ground by her breasts by an officer. 
while at camp, there was a woman during the pepper spray incident. I was chained into a hard block while getting pepper sprayed um, on August 21st, I think that was, um, or 22nd. Um, a woman got pepper sprayed in her crotch. There's a video on the Fairy Creek Blockade Instagram of an officer pushing through my camp, and you can see me in the video. Um, and he's going off talking about, boy, he, he says, and I'm pretty sure this is pretty damn close to the quote because I watched that video over and over again, just seething with rage. Um, he says, boy, you guys sure love putting your women up front to get grabbed, hey? And he's walking around all like poppycock talking about how he's going to grab our women. And something, you know, because I, after my camp got raided, I kept going back up the mountain, right? And I, every time I got taken down, you just go back up again. Um, the types of things that you would hear police say walking through, talking about which woman's the most fuckable. And, you know, they think they're, they're out of earshot, but really men are so loud that they are unable to like be aware of just how loud they are most of the time. And the way that they, they talk about mothers and which one's the most fuckable. Um, when I first showed up to camp, uh, one of the first things that I heard, because I took on a role of like facilitating legal observer workshops, I did a heck of a lot of workshops at headquarters um, and then R&R after the raid, um, is I had a lot of young girls come up to me and share their experiences. And these are minors. So these are youth under the age of 18 girls come to me and share their stories about what has happened with them as I'm doing like legal observer documentation talking about um what is legal observant so a legal observer is a third party arm's length witness that records police activity and that is not engaged mm. so I collected a little bit of data the first time I uh showed up at camp from people to help us just help people submit stories to, to get complaints going uh, against the RCMP. Um, but a legal observer is supposed to be there with a camera, with notes, um, to just be a witness and to record everything that is happening uh, to document police misconduct. Legal observing was created to um, establish and record what police misconduct looks like. Um, and it was first brought on by the Olympics here in BC anyway, with the mistreatment of the unhoused um, when the Olympics came to Vancouver in 2010. Um, and so the role of a legal observer is just like recording the data, what happens, setting the scene and just letting your presence be known. So that way the RCMP act right. Because let me tell you, even me just holding my, my phone up turned off, but with the flash on they know I'm recording, their whole behavior changes. It is so bizarre to see. The second you're recording versus not recording, and I like to let them know, my phone's on, I see you. They act different. This keeps us so safe. Yeah. But they also like to grab these and smash them. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, but one of the stories that I heard... Um, when I was doing like the legal observer workshops was about this group of girls under the age of 18, uh, some were indigenous, some were not that were denied menstrual products for eight hours. They were denied access to a washroom for eight hours. And one of these girls, um, is indigenous and she was dragged. So they said, we're going to start arresting. She decided to leave the scene to get herself away. 
and then four adult officers charged her, tackled her, dragged her by her ankles, revealing her breasts, scratching her up. And her other friends obviously aren't going to leave. So they like tried to de-arrest her and like lock themselves around her to prevent them from getting handcuffs on her because she was just trying to leave the scene. Um, they kept her exposed inside of the police wagon while calling her derogatory terms like ska and chug and dirty native and all of these other words while there is lip like four other girls so there's five girls total four girls sitting needing to have their basic needs taken care of because they do like to deny you access to food and water and bathroom breaks and all of that just to make it as uncomfortable as possible while their friend is being naked exposed um, and called derogatory terms in the wagon. And that was, I heard that day three of me being at the blockade, just trying to provide like a safe space for people to talk and decompress about their issues. So when I first showed up, I showed up knowing that this is how every single indigenous person, especially a woman is going to be treated. This is what is going to happen to them. And saying that you're just here for the trees is I would say racist mm -hmm. because you are failing to acknowledge the treatment of the indigenous people and the indigenous people have been stewards to this land since time immemorial, right? This is something that they know. They already have a relationship here. Colonialization is something that is still very fresh in our history. It is still here. It's still happening, right? I'm 23 years old. The last residential school closed in 1996. I was born in 98. So every Indigenous person born 1996 and here on after within my generation is the first to be born outside of a residential school. Now, foster care is still a thing. And foster care is just a rebrand of assimilation and cultural genocide against the Indigenous people. And so that's important to remember that those are things that are still actively happening. The foster care system does act as a genocidal force in assimilating indigenous people by removing them from their families, their land, and their culture. And I really need people to remember this. I really need people that are white settlers in leadership to remember, like, when you are saying that you are here for the trees, you are forgetting about the people. And especially here on Coast Salish territory, these are cedar people. These are, pe these are people of the trees. And if we give land back, like we're here because we took the land away from the natives. We're here because we let our culture, our capitalist colonial corporate culture, rape these lands. We're here because of our own doing. And so our responsibility in how to follow protocols is as white settlers, get into our white system, be involved with our government and tell them what's up. Take control of what we can do by asking our white colonial government to honor UNDRIP. So UNDRIP is a bill that is currently pending, and it's been pending, I believe, since 2008 in Canadian government. And it's the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP. So it is an international instrument adopted by the United Nations as of September 13th, 2007. Canada first rejected the notion, and this notion of UNDRIP is that Indigenous people have the right to self-govern. They have the right to moderate their livelihood, which is hunting, fishing, cultural practices. Um, and they have the right to, quote unquote, police themselves. 
And so Canada has accepted this declaration, but it has yet to implement on drip. Mm -hmm. And so something that we can do without overstepping as white people is go to our colonial government and say, honor UNDRIP, honor treaty rights, call out the um, irregularities that exist within our governing bodies and legislation. That is where our knowledge is best used because we have the privilege, because we are privy to the English language. That is something we can do, but to show up uninvited into indigenous pristine indigenous territory without initial consent discussion um, or protocols being followed was a very disrespectful act and there has yet to be an apology about that there has yet to be accountability following that act the conversation about the indigenous protocols is complex more people are talking about it in the next fairy creek episode in each view there is a nugget of truth I invite you to listen to Driftwood episode, talking about it too. When we are truly willing to hear more voices, something is changing in us. The right-wrong narrative seems to be relevant, and instead we grow the capacity to hold the bigger perspective of human limitations, needs, and complexity. And so, something that I really want to help work with is that type of education of how to be accountable, what a duty to repair looks like, Mm -hmm. um, and how we can kind of get people forward to being accountable for their mistakes. Because as it's been trying to deal with some of the people that are, or call themselves core organizers, um, is they run away from it. Like it's very much like, oh yeah, I did a bad thing. I'm not going to please everybody. Whoops. And they just kind of like shrug it off versus like, holy shit, I did something racist. Okay, I'm not going to take it personally, but I need to ask how I can help. If this person's willing to do it or even ask themselves, you know, what can I do better next time? How can I help the situation? You know, like I I find Mm -hmm. like there, there really isn't a lot of reflection. And if there was, we still wouldn't be having this discussion. Like this has been a discussion that has been ongoing with the Fairy Creek blockade, um, to my knowledge, for pretty much the whole whole time. Um, and the whole time I was there, it was a very present dialogue about how <sighs> there is so much ego involved in activism. Like a lot of people are here for the ego and are here for the media press. They're here to perpetuate their own narratives um, without getting to know the people what do you mean people are the land for the ego what do you mean people are in it for themselves they're in it to make their names known they're in it to hear themselves speak ego fame the ideas that we have in our head you know like like doing things that we think is good it gives a sense of power okay it feeds you in a different way right like ego is not necessarily always money ego is about the amount of space that you take up it's about how how good it feels to exist in a certain way to have power. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like ego does come from money and this blockade has raised money. Um, 
you know, and I know that it has gone to pay people back for things. I personally, because I've chosen not to reach out for reimbursement because the host nations haven't received anything. So until that happens, I'm, I'm like, okay, I can't take care of myself because I'm a white person on this land. Yes, my shit got destroyed, but look at what our blockade has already done to the land and we've destroyed the land as activists. We have. We've polluted, we've littered, we've loitered. Um, we've built so many freaking outhouses. We have left camps astray for like weeks on end. Um, after they've been raided and they haven't cleaned it up properly like we really fucked up at fairy creek and i would say like we still are fucking up pretty bad up there um and so a discussion that i'm having right now is with like i'm like when i talk about fairy creek things i try to only talk about it with indigenous people um as a way to be like because your your voices are the only voices that matter like this is your land everywhere that you walk and we need to focus on your voice because no one listens to you unless there's a white guy there saying fucking listen you know um anyway that's yeah <laughs> it just makes me upset knowing that none of my friends want to go back yeah it 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 breaks my heart Knowing that and seeing and witnessing this firsthand, Indigenous people trying fighting so hard to the point of tears to try and have their voices heard when they are continuously talked over by white people. It happens so much. Every circle that we would have, it's like some freaking white guy has his hand up and is telling them how they're wrong or how we should be doing this. And, and it's just so disrespectful. Um, what do you think contributing to this dynamic that they're being heard more? I, I think it's because white men really fight for their space. Um, like they used to have space. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, they're used to having that space, and so I think for a lot of them, when when they have something that that challenges their power, they need to overcompensate. They need to gain it back and they will continuously interrupt. They will physically make their voices louder and get louder. They will move into the circle. They will move closer to who they're having discussion with to take up more space. And a lot of the time... And this is happening um, in the circle sharing, in the gathering sharing? So this is happening during circles. This is happening during like uh, pre-action and post-action meetings. This is happening during like daily check-ins. Um that nobody runs no, that. I don't know nobody can like say, hello, excuse me, you have two minutes, your time is up, something like that. It's the indigenous women that do. So these people are already appointed in positions of power. They are appointed as our leaders. We've all agreed upon this. And these men still challenge it because it's something that they're not personally comfortable with. And then it makes me wonder, why did you come to the blockade then? Like there is a code of conduct, terms and agreements an intake system that I personally gave you when you came to this blockade, I told you this is an indigenous led blockade. A lot of people say that it's grassroots decentralized. And I say, no, that's harmful. That's colonial. And that perpetuates white supremacy. This is an indigenous led movement. These indigenous people have been fighting this exact fight against colonialism and corporate greed since white man first stepped on Pearl Island. They know what they're doing. They got this. We just need to be there to support them and keep them safe. Yeah. So that is something that is discussed to every person that comes into the blockade. However, men have selective listening. 
And like for me, I have no no problem speaking up. And so there's times where men do speak out of turn. I said, you're speaking out of turn. And then they turn on to me. They said, well, no, this has to be said. And I said, no, actually what you're saying is not relevant or helpful right now. You just got here. Please sit down. And a lot of the time, these are men that have just showed up thinking that they're going to change the world. Now, mind you, there has been people that aren't men per se that show up and come in with this egotistical mentality of like, I already know everything that has to be done. And it's like, no, actually, you've been here for a day and a half. You need to learn observation. You need to learn what your gifts are and what you can bring in a good way. You know, like everyone has the ability to be a leader, but when you have indigenous people that are speaking, it needs to be understood. And now I understand that a lot of these people don't have these building blocks, but neither did I. And I learned through human relation. Yeah, you're open to learn, right? And it just comes from that openness. And men are very greedy. And every time I go up to the blockade, I do have a discussion with the man about how he has caused harm, whether it be from sexual advances at the blockade, or whether it be like physically asserting himself in a way that is threatening. Like it is something that happened pretty much daily. And it gets exhausting. It gets to the point where you're like, I can't continuously keep doing the work for these guys. Like they need to come in already trained. We need other men to step up and listen to it. And it's so weird because the second one man gets angry, all of the men in the premises are on his side. The second one man gets loud and he's upset about something, all the men are on his side. But the second a woman starts crying. Yeah. What do they do? She's just emotional. Is it that time of the month again? What Mama is doing now is processing their experience. After a harsh, long time of intense experience, it's very wise to process. Processing an experience is surfacing what happened, talking about it. The best way is uninterruptedly. Some people need more guidance. Some people need pure listening. You can see that Mama carry a lot. After we take the time to process and reflect, we feel rested. The load that we carry will be released. Some of the burnout will disappear. And you will have new understanding of the best way to go forward. Give this present of listening of pure listening, uninterrupted listening, to a friend of yours that need that. So what the other women in the group do? The other women support women. They do. We keep us safe, right? And there's support there. But no matter where we go, because the patriarchy is so ingrained, male dominance is always going to be upheld. Even if you have so many women standing with women, the men won't accept that reality. And they don't accept that reality. Lots that are up there really do. And I have met a lot of really sweet, kind, aware, accountable, learning, empathetic men Yeah. Um, that are there to help support. But a lot of the time, these men have been so hurt by other men that they themselves are afraid to speak up. Because of how triggering it can be. Yeah. What do you feel about the signal messaging right now? 
there's more indigenous voices speak up? Is it getting better? Is it getting somewhere? Um, I hate social media. I hate non-face-to-face communication. And I think a lot of us do too. And I think before we talk about anything that involves social media or online discussion, it needs to be noted that as someone who is neurodivergent too, right? Like I'm not neurotypical. I have traits of ADHD. I've been diagnosed with bipolar, with borderline traits. Um, And I know that there are a lot of people in this movement that have autism and ADHD and autism share a lot of traits. And when we're talking through the phone, we can interpret anyone's hello any way we want, right? So we are completely void of the emotion. We're completely void of the human to human communication that we can have with somebody by being able to read their emotions, connect to their hearts, to their cecleas. That's another word for heart um, in a way that is good and authentic because you know, even though I have training from therapy and through doing dialectical behavioral therapy work, it is very tough to have a group chat full of like 500 plus people. And there's a lot of truth to what is being said on the indigenous perspective. I agree wholeheartedly with a lot of what is being said. Now, I feel like it is very racist to tone police BIPOC people. Um, It is an aspect of the pyramid of white supremacy is to tone police people. Do I think that that there is something that we could do to practice respect and just kind of understand to each other, you know, like it's tough because we're here because of systemic racial issues, right? Within this movement. But some of you, yes. How do we find a line? Yeah, right. And so how do we come to a place where people have capacity to do so yeah but come to a place where we are able to look at each other as personal relations as yael to marmar as whoever to whoever you know like i'm not saying to completely remove the racial aspect of it but i think there needs to come a turning point where And this happens through healing, acknowledgement, relations, and a lot of accountability work to get to this point, right? But where do we get to the point where we are able to see each other as each other? Yeah. It is very hard through Signal and through social media. Yeah. Especially because, like, I don't know, there is benefits to conversing through social media and through text. And that is that you are able to uh, read the messages, sit reach more people but sit and digest and actually take time to reflect and practice emotional regulation right Mm -hmm. and like holy heck i'd be lying to you if i said i didn't get super triggered by signal like i've gotten so freaking mad and just like like you know like why can't we get along and it's like okay well we're not getting along because people aren't being heard certain people are being heard and it's usually white settlers and then indigenous people are constantly being told that they didn't do something the right way to make it nice and packaged pretty for settler folk and so when i see these types of discussions happening through signal as an administrator i take a personal responsibility to individually reach out to the settler people who in my opinion are the ones acting out of line and explaining to them the situation as to why they have to build capacity And I do firmly believe that settlers need to be doing more work 
I think that it is an outrageous, ridiculous request to ask Indigenous and BIPOC folk to present their narratives and their wishes in a way that is respectable and palatable. I think that it's important for people to be able to take a person's raw emotion, look at, at the meat of what they said, look at the meat and, and see what you can do with that. How can I help this person? Nobody is asking, how can I help? Everyone is saying, how dare you? How can I help? How dare you? Those are the only two narratives. This is a long and intense conversation. Take a moment to connect to yourself again, to your feelings, to your body. I shared it in the signal chat specifically one day I shared um, a TED talk video about uh, decolonization that was done at um, Simon Fraser. And it specifically talked about how to start a blockade in a way that follows protocol. So it talked about how to follow indigenous protocols at a blockade. And it specifically mentioned the error with Ferry Creek, you know, without naming Ferry Creek, it said like, it needs to be started by indigenous people. Indigenous people need to be consulted before you move in and squat on their land. That was something that was said in the video. And one of my friends who was indigenous straight up told me to go fuck myself. And I was like, whoa, that really sucked. That sucked hard. I am grateful that I have a relationship with this person and I know the place that they're speaking from. Um, but to anyone else that doesn't have that relationship, it is scary and it can be traumatizing at the end of the day. Like we genuinely, every single one of us is still a scared child in one form or another. Yeah. And so it's really tough for me to be like, I see this person's hurt and try to deal with the, with the ripple effect of this person's <clears throat> hurt coming through without overstepping. So it is, is a very sensitive um, thing that has to be done in, with a lot of care. And I genuinely believe that like, yeah, it, it comes on to settler responsibility to seek counsel with fellow settlers with European white descent uh, to talk about how those feelings go and to talk about how we can support each other and how we can provide and cultivate a brave space for BIPOC. And BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous uh, People of Color. Um so I, at times I feel very lost, um, but, you know, in lieu before this interview, actually, um, I had a lovely discussion with uh, Flip Flops, who is Haida, and she acknowledges that she's Haida, and she has been holding down uh, roadside since the raid on HQ. Like, she has always been there, has always been, like, a point person of Indigenous leadership, um, and, like, knows who to talk to, knows how to follow protocol. Um, and is very firm in her boundaries. She's a mother of two um, and just like a super lovely grounded person. And the discussion that I had with her last night is is exactly what I just said, how, you know, white settlers, we have to keep to ourselves and come up with our own plans and how we can, you know, not overstep 
with our feelings or onto like indigenous protocol. Um, Charlotte was saying how, you know, in, indigenous folks have to do the same. And Charlotte recognized that, that there is like a, a generational gap of connection within the indigenous community that is up there right now. And it's really tough because talking with, with the youth too, right? Because a lot of the, the elders that show up there have been to residential schools. They are survivors of very intense abuse, sexually, emotionally, mentally, culturally, ancestral abuse. And so yeah. when you talk with the youth, the youth are like, I can see their trauma and I can see that, that, you know, a lot of times they, the youth feel that a lot of the elders are appeasing a lot of the, the white dialogue. Um, and that makes them feel kind of left out and they feel like because they, for whatever reason, have a more radical point of being that even still w within in in their own grouping that white people are still favored or given uh crutches to more than they are you know um and i and i see that happen a lot is like and i i'm guilty of this too um in some instances of like <sighs> the the fawn response of of fawning over somebody else as someone who is a little more dysregulated or has power you know like a systematic power dynamic which is you know like any white person especially white men they have the most power in the world socially and every other way but I found myself that there's times where I'm trying to have a discussion, it starts getting heated and then I fall into the fawn response. I can feel myself in a, in a covert way, get triggered where I no longer want to challenge this person's dialogue or to have this discussion going because I'm scared and I'm exhausted and I'm experiencing a trauma response that's covert. Marma, let's dive into this issue you raised up. You have a friend, he calls your name, It's very aggressive for you, and you get scared and traumatized and shut down. And yet, it's very important for you that his voice will be heard in a way over your voice. And you call it tone policing. Can you explain what is tone policing and why it's so important? So tone policing someone is like when... Um... Let's say I feel very passionate and I'm angry about something and I'm dropping F-bombs left, right, and center, um, whether they are just like a general like fuck um, or, you know, fuck yous. Um, while I'm in this moment of catharsis um, expression, um, and it's when someone takes the time to interrupt you when you're saying something that is emotionally charged that you need to be heard. And they put all the emphasis on how it was delivered and the fact that you swore versus putting the emphasis and the attention to the meat and the bulk of what was said. So I tend to find that like tone policing can exist anywhere. Um, but when we're tone policing people, it's when we put emphasis and our attention to the fact that we don't like the way that somebody said it versus being able to open up the discussion and look at what it is that they're saying, not how they said it. 
Um, so yeah, it's so a f- focus on what is the context versus how it was delivered. I feel like given the context of this world, um, you know, I am white. I'm from your European descent. I am an assorted cracker, if you will. Um, and so it's just me saying like, like I'm very white. I'm a mixture of white, whitey all the way through, even though, you know, a lot of my lineage is ancestrally pagan and Celtic. Um, and so those are roots that I'm currently tapping into, but through that lens, like I see as a personal responsibility to myself as a settler and I encourage other settlers. Now I'm not saying that this is the right way to be, but this is a discussion that I've had with BIPOC poke BIPOC friends of mine where they're like, we really need people to settlers, white settlers to work on their capacity and just hold space for indigenous people. Um, especially in these movements where it is highly like we are everywhere we go is indigenous land. It doesn't matter if you're in your own home, your home is on indigenous land. And especially here on the West coast, it's unseated. So, you know, it, to me, that respect kind of comes innately in my wantingness to help extremely marginalized people feel supported is to recognize that myself as a white settler on these lands, that I am going to have to do more work. That is a personal responsibility that I am taking on. And that is something that a lot of BIPOC folk and indigenous folk are asking. Um, because we do want to come together and fight for the forest. We do want to come together in these good ways. But we all know that there is a massive history of genocide against the first peoples of Turtle Island. So as, you know, even though it wasn't me, it wasn't Mar Mar directly, it wasn't my family directly, but it was in a sense, right? And it is in the way that I gatekeep certain actions. It is in the way when I tell people that you can't say that, but at the same time, you know, like there, there are times where I do read dialogue from a friend of mine, um, and it does evoke a trauma response in me because he is a man um, and I am like a young trans person and I can find myself going into a fond response some of the time. But it's a discussion that I have with myself personally to say, you know, I have relations with this person. I know where it is that they're speaking from. So I have to just take the time to have that conversation with myself um, to come forward in a way where I can allow space for my being to feel heard and seen, as well as his being to be heard and seen. Um, And it's a tough discussion um, at this point in time because I'm realizing that I am very much afraid of backlash when I say, hey, like, I really want your voice to be heard. I want you to feel like you are being heard. But it, but it's tough when I see other people that I care about being talked to in a way, myself being talked to in a way where um, it made me feel scared um, and like not safe or supported by someone that I consider a friend. Um, and I find myself in a spot of hypocrisy right now, and I don't really know how to settle because I, I feel like I am being hypocritical at this time because I want to provide people the space to share, but it's coming to a point now where I'm recognizing in myself, um, and more people are coming forward saying that, like, you know, I'm trying to focus on the meat and the bulk of what is being said, but I am lying to myself. When I say that that doesn't take, like, I, I 
you know, you can only take so much until it starts getting on you. And even though it has really nothing to do with me and it's tough being in an admin position because I am now 24 um, and I don't have all the tools. I am afraid of some of the backlash. I want these things to be heard. I want it to be open, discussed and authentic, but at what cost? how I'm feeling in this moment. And this is something that I need to discuss with, with this individual personally, but I've been afraid to. You're doing such a deep and amazing inquiry. I think it's not hypocrisy. I think what you're you're experiencing right now is having two voices, having two conflicting voices. You know, one is saying, I want their voices to be heard. And I know their voices are very, very important and were shut down for so long. And at the same time, you feel scared because when they raise their voices, you feel shut down. You feel being traumatized yourself. And it's hard to negotiate those two. But holding those two conflicting voices in you is closer to the truth than shutting one of them down. Just sit on that for a second. Um, on an interpersonal level, Well, racism goes every way, right? It goes every single direction. However, myself experiencing as a white person racism, uh, like being, you know, I, I can't even th- think of like, <laughs> and here's the thing too, is like, I'm like trying to think of something to like roast myself for being white. And the only thing that comes to my mind is like cracker or like something like that, right? Like there, there literally isn't much framework systematically or socially that, To have racism against white people other than calling them on their shit and saying like you're perpetuating this trait you know so like overall globally like it's really tough for me to experience racism um, so like and you know there has been discussions that, that I've had with bipoc folk where they're like I am straight up racist against white people because I can't trust them like time and time again like like the reason why I feed into those narratives is because it's it's safer for me to do so it is safer for them to distrust every white person that they meet like one of my best friends Chiviet their first Im- immigrant from China and uh, we've done a lot of work together that at the blockade and they say like when they talk to other bipoc folk they're like don't trust white people make sure you have like a collection of bipoc folk um, before you expect white people to jump in to support you because they're just not going to have an idea right and even like today um, even though me and my friend TV and I've known each other for a couple of years now um, there's still times where I do something and they're like Mar that was super not okay like that was like really entitled and like privileged of you and I'm gonna need you to like reflect upon that and So this comment com- feels completely different than the F-bomb comments. It feels safe, even if there is criticism in that. It feels there is a respect and there is a space for me to grow, do my reflection. So saying like, how do we solve this racism problem? I don't know if we'll ever be able to solve, solve it. Um, I would like mm-hmm. to see it take the root of person to person. What is the relationship between this individual to this individual? Like, yes, we do have this big global systemic issues that are constantly pressing and are over top of people every single day. You know, like every day that we're fighting at the Ferry Creek blockade, we are fighting against colonial genocide because that's what an extractivist economy is. That's what's happening is it's destroying indigenous land, ancestral sacred land. Yeah. 
And yeah. in my mind, like, like I've said before, when we've had talked is that we are doing this to give land back to indigenous people. Like once we save the trees, then what? Is it gonna get turned into a campground for people to come in and go camping? Like, no. Like it needs to be a protected space and it needs to go back to the indigenous nations um, that run that. And they need to be able to go back to practicing the ancestral land and rebuilding those medicine trails. You know, this is very special that you have this ability to see from BIPOC people's uh, point of view because you are white and you are privileged and you completely immersed yourself in their point of view and their needs and this is very beautiful. We often feel stuck when our mind goes to should, shouldn't, have, have to, right, wrong, never, always, those kinds of patterns and, and you know, um, we have many voices in ourselves and when those voices are not being heard, there is any inner conflict and we feel stuck. I just feel stuck because I feel like I don't know whereabouts to like elaborate upon because I, I do want to just like say more about like my hypocrisy. Like I can recognize that other people are feeling triggered too. And like, how far is everyone's capacity supposed to go? How far is my capacity supposed to go with like, like what, what behavior is okay and what isn't like I, like what is being said is super valuable, but it's getting to the point for, for me. And I'm talking for, like my being, even though I am friends with this person, um, I'm still afraid of him. And I'm trying hard not to be because I've seen him blow up. I've seen him get mad and I've been there and I've, you know, and we've been able to talk things out before in the past. Um, and for me, it just seems like the more messages I read, the more things that I receive, I'm trying to provide him that space because I see what you know, he's been through. I've seen and heard horror stories about things that I will never experience because I am who I am. Um, and it's just really, I don't know, a rock between a hard place. I, I feel like no matter what I say, it's going to be the wrong thing to somebody. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of causing harm for speaking my truth. I'm afraid of, because I'm doing it in a way just to be like, I, I want to feel okay. I'm feeling hurt. I know other people are feeling hurt, um, but I'm worried that I'm making it too much about myself and that by voicing my feelings that I am taking away from somebody else. So you're not afraid from his aggression. You're afraid of hurting him and hurting others by taking space. Yeah. You're not afraid to be attacked or being uh, shut down or being... I've would like to see <laughs> I you know what I'm not and little me young me has been through a lot of verbal violence um so I'm not necessarily afraid of the aggression I'm just afraid of like <sighs> inflicting more harm onto others but in turn like of speaking my truth I'm doing and not speak speaking or speaking my truth it just feels like I'm doing harm onto myself like I have a huge fear of rejection because um, I really try to step forward in a good way. And I find a lot of the time um, over this past year, like I, I give a lot of myself to other people without giving back in return, which is fine because I do feel nourished when I'm taking care of my relations. Um, but this topic itself is, is really, really tough to deal with. Um, 
and I just like how I'm feeling is uncertain. I feel nervous about this podcast um, coming out just because I I hope that, you know, when people receive my words that they would want to have a discussion with me about it. I would hope that they would say, you know, Marmar, can we talk about this portion of it? You know, I want to reach out to you, check out to see, you know, how you are doing. And I hope that this can be used as a tool to reflect for everybody, myself included, um, and to come together in a way where we can equally do better. You know, here's my part, but you have a part too. You know, it might not be upholding white supremacy, but it might be between the trust in the relations between your interpersonal relations, you know, like, do you want to have people in afraid of you or do you want to have people who feel like they're able to come up and speak to you authentically in a way that's constructive, um, in a way that, that leaves both parties feeling okay. Yeah. After the raid on headquarters happened, we lost a lot of our space, our infrastructure and resources, and we had pressure put on us. Like, yes, there was a lot of issues, like these issues were still present there beforehand, but it was my, one of my responsibilities um, to just like facilitate those discussions. Like I would have my friends and other people in camp come up to me and say, hey, Marmar, like we have a new person. He said some weird things earlier. I was wondering if you could, you know, just like have a chat with him and let him, let these people alchemate to camp. And so like, those would be people that I would befriend and I would, you know, just share discussions with them, talk about me, have them talk about them, why they're here. And just kind of, because I had the capacity, because I'm like, this is my purpose. This is my, my duty to the land is to make sure that I can help other settlers kind of like gain these building blocks, right. you know? Are they interested to learn? They are. They are. Okay. They are. And there has been times where I've had men like, like, okay. There's been times where I've had men where they are being very intentionally overpowering. And there's times where I've had men that are literally so blind to their behavior that they had no idea that they were causing harm because no one took the time to explain it to them. Okay. And there's this, this is one very fellow valuable. that, yeah, there's this one fellow that brought me to tears out of frustration one day because he just was not listening. And I'm like, dude, I'm trying to give you the answers. You keep interrupting me, talking over me. I'm telling you that you're doing these things and you're not changing. And then there came a time when, you know, I reached my capacity and I had my community saw that I was in distress. My community stepped in to have a discussion with him. And he later became one of my best friends. And he's like 60 years old, you know? Yeah. And so it's tough because like at first when I first met, met this man, I was like, fuck you. I hate you. You made me cry. You're not listening to me. I'm explicitly telling you my needs and you are not listening to me. Now, I am me. I practice some emotional regulation skills. I told him off. We made up for it. You know, we're friends now. But in those moments, I was livid. And I knew that he was going to be staying there for a couple days because I did his intake. I had his information. Um, and because of my community and, and because of the safety that I have in my vessel because of, you know, my whiteness and my masculine, my masculineness. Um, I was able to take time to be like, I'm going to go up and talk to him. And he, my community helped him change his mind. Um, and help him actually see that. There is many things you said about white men. And I wrote some of those things down. 
you said you need to listen, you need to respect protocols, you need to learn observation, speak in your turn, respect the leader we chose. You're not going to, to change the world. You came here with egoistic mentality. You need to learn to, to bring your gifts in a good way. You need to build relationship first. You caused harm by your sexual advances uh, and the way you assert yourself is threatening and they usually get yeah. angry. So you say many things about white men. Um, it feels like you know them in the inside, right? Like you also, in a, in a way, white men, but also see yourself mm-hmm. as not. So let's do an exercise uh, and imagine you're a white person that loves the trees and wants to help and feel he has a lot to contribute. And this is why he wants to show up at the Ferry Creek Blockade and help. And you're willing to put your comfort life aside and to sacrifice that because you think you can contribute, because you feel like you have skills that you want to, that you can do something good with yourself. You can do something meaningful with yourself. And you're even willing to fight with police. You're even willing to live in a tent for a few days. You don't know what you're going to eat, but you say, okay, I'll do that because this is so important for me. And you finally arrive to the camp. And then when you show up there, you're being told on your first day, wait, sit, listen, observe, learn the land. You're offensive. You're threatening. You need to change. How does it feel as a white guy to hear that? Biggest blow I've ever had. I have never been told no a day in my life. I have never had my ideas shot down before. I have only ever been provided that space to be me and to let my gifts and my ideas be heard. And then to be told in this group where I, I feel like I'm stepping forward in a good way, it really hurts. Because this is a feeling that I don't know how to cope with. It's something I've never groundlessness like I have nowhere to stand that no one's standing with me what else my mind went to self-hatred and self-resentment um hating so much who I am um you know this is just where like like the masculine feeling guilty is Hmm, if I Like the the balanced me, the the aware Marmar who is both male and female, um, feels that guilt. But if I really feed into like the the type of mentality that I took on, um, the aware parts of me, the parts of me that are aware of the male and the female, do feel that guilt. The aware parts of me, but when I tap into who I was like four years ago, um, that guilt. But the aware parts of me that can honor the male and the female side do feel that guilt, and that guilt makes me want to take a step back, follow through on those requests, and be like, "Hey, even though I stepped forward in a wrong way, I got told off for it. I've been told how I can step forward in a good way." I know now what I can do to be here in a good way. And then 
maybe my ideas can come to fruition. Um, but the unaware part of me, when I really go down that hole of my masculinity, is it makes me want to turn on those people. It makes me want to say, well, who are you to say that I can't do this? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done to get to where I am? Do you have any idea how many years of work it took me to be able to come to this conclusion? Um, and that's like, like the unhealed masculine line in me. That's kind of the way my father would respond. Um, and so it's tough because you can either, you either have men who show up who are aware, um, you know, and people do come forward in a big way where they're just genuinely excited. They're like, you know, this is what I've done. I've done like some tree planting stuff and people come in and they're like really hot. They want to learn how to do things. And they're like golden retriever energy where, you know, we take that excitement and we say, hold on, hold on. You know, you can use that. Just not right now. You got to learn the ropes first. You know, you show up anywhere. Hate to compare blockade work to a job, but it is work. It's not paid colonial work. It's in a prayerful way. But uh, we still have to, you know, just be able to, everybody has to be able to take shit and just be told, like, this is what we need. And we need to kind of come to a way where we're able to agree upon with what our systems are. Um, and because there is a sense of white supremacy and male entitlement, um, we're never going to get there. And this is something that I have personally experienced a lot. Well, I, I am saying never because I have really given 110% of my effort to work with these men, to have dialogue, to provide them space, to tell them, if you want to fix this, you have the power to fix it. You can make it better. You can make, you know, you can not necessarily like clear your name, but you can start doing accountability work. Here's how. And I am brushed off and I am pushed away because how dare I? I don't really know what it is that I'm talking about. I don't deserve to be respected. Um, so I feel like it is. So mama, so this part that is unaware that his, it's masculinity is, um, not safe. That re reply with how dare you, what does this part in you need to hear to be able to cooperate, to be able to fit into the new norm that kind of shocked to find out. Right. But what is this unaware part needs to hear? What is the best thing that I can tell you if I am now in the blockade? Um, so like tapping into the, the unaware part, my toxic ma masculine, um, the, the, the how dare you when I'm being told how to act and it's something totally new and foreign to something that I've never had done. Um, it's interesting because I, I am recognizing that angry part, that, that part that says, how dare you? But what comes forward is my nurturer is saying like, he needs his hand held. Like he's, he's hurting, he's sick. He's never learned. And for me, like my, my nurturer is saying like, the, give this person care. It's going to take work. And yes, like you're frustrated by this but they're also frustrated by this and you know you have to take this time 
to hold his hand, let him know that he is valuable and that his presence is needed and that there will come a time where we can put his skills to use. Let him know that it's going to be okay. It's just not going to happen right now, but we'll get there. These are the beginning days. Take it low and slow. Get to know people. Get to know this new environment that you're stepping into, this new home. And try to be calm. So part of me that a lot of my being is very angry at the, the masculine. Um, and I feel quite hurt. I feel in, in every time I meet like a new man um, in my day to day life, like I had a staff party the other night and there was a guy that I hadn't actually met at the table. And I found myself quite nervous around him because I'm like, you know, like what, what is a safe conversation? How is this man going to treat me? Where is this going to come from? Um, but at the same time, the masculine part of me that has hurt itself because I've hurt myself by feeding into a certain type of masculinity um, is that men are really good at beating themselves up and beating each other up. They, as now I'm bu butchering this bell hooks quote, but we exist within a patriarchy and the way that the patriarchy is designed is to clip men's wings, clip their emotions. They can only be dominant in one aspect, which is the material. Forget the mental, forget the spiritual, forget the emotional. You are only a material, a material man whose focus is to work hard, look good and control. They're not allowed to grow and flourish in all categories. And so for them, I feel like when they get told that, you know, they can sit down and be quiet, it completely disrupts what they're used to doing or what they feel like their expectation is. And they feel lost. They feel like they're floundering and then they have to cause harm or do something drastic in order to gain a sense of control and attention. Yeah. And it's tough because how do you provide space for that when you yourself are so angry? You know, and this is transferable, you know, this is dialogue transferable to, you know, sexism, male to female, but also between ethnic groups that are present at the blockade. How do you provide that space when you can recognize that yourself? And I know that every Indigenous BIPOC person can see it from the other shoe, but they don't have capacity because they're like, look at all the things that are on top of us compared to you. It's time for you to do the work, put us on top of the pyramid for a change. Yeah. I'm interested to know how was listening to Ersa's podcast made you feel? Um, you know, I really agreed with the, like, every person is a hurt child. Um, and that, you know, based on your de demographic, like, everybody is racist. I'm racist. I'm also transphobic um, to an extent. And it is going to be lifelong learning on those fronts. However, the one thing that I really want to draw attention to from listening to that interview is like when someone calls you a racist, you know, not like, like you, you should take it personally in a way where it's constructive. Like you say, holy shit, that was a reflection on something that I did. And it's not a, I'm not going to care what people think of me because they're going to think what they think anyway. It should actually be uh, a cue for personal responsibility to say, okay, what did I do that made 
this person perceived that I was racist? Was that my intention that? No. But how was that racist? Regardless of my intention, how was that racist? And how can I help prevent that in the future? And that's something that I found was really missing from that interview was personal accountability of how can I help and what can I do different? So when people call you out on things, even if it's not in a way that's palatable and they're straight up like you are racist, it should be, you know, and she was right saying, you know, you don't go to that person, you know, unless they're open to it, you know, you can seek duty to repair, but it, it felt like there, there was a lack of personal responsibility to be like, okay, even though my intentions were good, what can I follow up with to actually make change to be aware of my blindness in that moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, last words. That, that, that's really nice. Okay. Last words. What What do you want to wish for the new year? Um, I really want people to know how good it can feel to let something go. Like I know that when you're working on something so, so hard and you love it so much and you want it to turn out so deeply that you forget about everything else and everyone else that is involved around it. And I wish for the new year that we are able to leave to to let go and accept that maybe things didn't go the way that we thought and that's okay um and yeah i don't know that that's really all i have to say it's just like it feels really good to let it go you work so hard but when you let go you gain something and you gain the knowledge of hindsight <laughs> and you can use that to share and teach others You know, I feel like the mistakes done at Fairy Creek Blockade are something that are teachable, learnable. And I hope that a lot of healing can come from it. And you did mention something about a song. <laughs> yes, let's go for it. This is a, a ballad that I sing quite frequently because it just kind of brings me into seizing things when they're ripe before it's ruined. And I feel like this ballad kind of ties in our, our discussion a lot. Um, because it's about not letting things go until it's too late. It's about being able to seize it and take action and not go against your own morals and the goals that you've set for yourself. Um, and it goes a little like this. She, 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 she only ever, ever, ever walks to to count, count her steps. Eighteen teen strides as she stops to abide by the laws that she herself has set. That 18 steps is one complete set, and before the next nine right and nine left, she looks up, up at the blue and whispers to all of the above, don't let me drown, don't breathe alone, no kicks, no pangs, no broken bones, never let me sink. Always feel at home, no sticks, no shanks, and no stones. Never leave it too late, just enjoy the taste of the great, 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 great world of hearts. As all dogs everywhere bark, 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 it's worth knowing. Like all good fruit, the balance of life is in the right and ruin so take action act from your heart and act in a way that is true and authentic and from a place of kindness 
to learn more about how racial divide is being seen from white people perspective, please listen to Waya's episode number 22. So to avoid self-ostracization, these people wrote apology letters and sent them out into the signal groups and were immediately shut down by the BIPOC people saying your apology isn't enough. We don't accept it. Wow. We want you to leave. You do not have the right to be here. You have to go away. It's simply like you make me uncomfortable to be around and I don't feel like I can communicate with you because you're not accepting me just essentially belittling you and berating you constantly every time we come across each other. There was a lack of communication from both sides and a lack of understanding where like it could have been resolved so easily if the two groups had just sat down and talked. And there were many moments where that would happen, but it was essentially one group saying, you did this, no, I didn't do that. You did this, oh, I don't really see it that way. Thank you for listening to the Effective Conversations podcast. Please reach out to talk about how we can help you and your organization transform conflict into cooperation. Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet.